Broadcasting from the Hip Hop Weekly Studios, I'd like to welcome you to another episode of Civic Cypher, where our mission is to foster allyship, empathy, and understanding. I am your host, Ramses Ja. Big shout out to my man Q Ward, who could not be with us today, and he is kicking himself because we have a very special show in store for you. We want you to stick around both segments because we're going to be talking to author activist attorney he is a triple a threat the one and only kasim rashid who is running for illinois 11th congressional district uh you may know him from his social media activism you may know him for being on our social media because we've certainly shared a lot of his content uh we always say that he's cooking cooking what you may ask well he's cooking facts people political parties you name it and we are going to get to know him better. There's a whole lot in store. Uh, we're going to be discussing, of course, his campaign um, and some of the challenges to, you know, running a an independent campaign where there's no um, what's the word I'm looking for when there's like money in politics. Uh, it gets a little um, problematic there. Uh, we're also going to be talking about, you know, his opposition and and some of his thoughts on the goings on with the country at large, politically speaking. So first and foremost, Kasim, welcome to the show, man. I appreciate you being here today. Ramsey, it's a privilege to be here, brother. Thank you for having me. I appreciate that. So um, that and so much more to stick around for on the show. Again, we're going to be t discussing um, everything from your social media activism to uh, obviously we need to talk about the things going on with the Supreme Court. There's been a lot of hypocrisy in the Republican Party. You've been bringing a lot of attention to that. Uh, and so many things. It's a really exciting uh, conversation we're about to have. So again, plenty to stick around for. But before we get there, uh, as we do on this show, we are going to start the show off with some Ebony Excellence. And today's Ebony Excellence is sponsored by Major Threads. For innovative, fashionable sportswear, check MajorThreads.com. And today's Ebony Excellence comes from Afrotech. Uh, we often talk about geniuses on this show particularly child geniuses and today we have another such individual a brilliant black mind in the name of kingston lawrence uh this comes from klfy 10 in lafayette louisiana they report that the seven-year-old is a child genius with an iq between 145 and 150 as proof the outlet also notes that he was in the 99th percentile on the IQ test he took, uh, looking to nurture Kingston's intelligence since parents began to look for resources. In the process, they stumbled across Mensa, an organization founded in 1946 that has one of its key purposes, quote, to foster human intelligence for the benefit of humanity. This according to its website. As Afrotech previously mentioned, in order to join Mensa's community, uh, an individual must score within the upper 2% of the general population on an approved intelligence test. Now being a part of the illustrious group, Kingston says he feels really good and expresses joy about joining the organization. Quote, I thought it was pretty nice because this is probably the first or second club I've ever gotten into, uh, explained Kingston according to the outlet. His interests include mathematics and robotics, and he hopes to become an architect in the future. And Kingston now joins a growing list of children to be in Mensa, including the six-year-old Chandler Hughes, as previously mentioned by Afrotech. The Texas first grader became the youngest to be admitted into the club. So brilliant black minds, uh, as we say on this show, uh, intelligence is equally distributed throughout the population. Opportunity is not. And uh, this is among 
many things that make me excited to have the conversation we're about to have, Kasim. Uh, again, I appreciate you um, joining us today. So let's start this at the beginning. Uh, give us a little bit about your background. Who is Kasim Rashid? Well, thank you again for the opportunity to dialogue. And before I dive into that, just a comment on on this child, this genius child you're talking about. Please. I always think about the difference between talent and genius. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the old saying is talent hits the target nobody else can hit. Genius hits the target nobody else can see. Mm. And, and the younger generation, when we think about the revolutions that our country has gone through in the past, it was young people who led those revolutions. Dr. Sure. King was 26 when he led the Montgomery bus boycott. Absolutely. Back to 29 when he was a national spokesperson for the nation. Uh, you look at the impact of John Lewis, uh, Claudia Colvin, Irene Morgan, Robert Smalls. Uh, these are all people in their teens or their 20s. And so I start by speaking to our listeners that don't feel helpless if you're young and you feel like you don't have power. Indeed, the only people that have ever brought about meaningful justice in this country are young people who didn't have power, but they took the power through collective activism. Absolutely. And I think that that's a segue to, to how our campaign is functioning. But my background is I'm an immigrant to this country. I'm a proud immigrant. We, we migrated from Pakistan when I was about four years old. And we arrived in a new environment, a new world, and uh, fortunate to have parents that would, it, it ingrained in us this element of service to humanity and this element of being engaged with our community. Mm-hmm. Um, now, despite that, we fell on some really hard economic times. It was, I spent most of my 90s in Section 8 housing on food stamps. I've been working since I was 15 years old. And I think that framed for me the need to have representation, the need to be deliberate about the message we sent out and how we engage in our communities. It wasn't until I got married to my wonderful wife, Aisha, now almost 17 years, that she encouraged me to go to law school. And, and that, I think, got me to where I am right now in that I've spent the last 15 years working on human rights law, everything from supporting survivors of domestic and sexual violence to combating racial injustice to expanding health and education access on a global scale, and now running on these same values for U.S. Congress. Uh, In the intro, you mentioned about corporate money and politics. There's a reason why we're rejecting all corporate money. We're fully people-funded and we're not only fully people funded, but we are outraising my corporate funded opponent. We're proving nice. by example that when you collectively get people to work together, you can accomplish what other people view as impossible and we can make it uh, inevitable, make success inevitable. So that's where we are now. We're less than 35 days from Election Day. We're building momentum and it's a privilege to speak to you and your listeners today as well. That 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 uh, I, the honor is mine, I can assure you. Um, one of the things that I felt when I first found out that you were Pakistani American, uh, both Q and I, we have uh, friends who are uh, Pakistani American um, friends and and good friends of the show, of course, and longtime supporters, but friends before anything else. Um, One of the things that we felt was very important was solidarity. So this show um, and and indeed the education that Q and I were were. Uh, privileged to be able to have growing up, we were able to learn about a gentleman by the name of Fred Hampton. And, um, and uh, in learning about him, we learned about the Rainbow Coalition and um, how working together with marginalized communities, different marginalized communities, Mm -hmm. uh, makes us stronger. And we learned that 
in a post 9-11 society, uh, folks who were Middle Eastern, uh, folks particularly Pakistani-American individuals, were dealing with something that was very troubling and they could find a little bit of comfort in the arms of, if I'm honest, black women. Um, and to a larger extent, the black community, because this is a, a position that we have been in longer than anyone else in this country. Right. And so I wonder if your experiences growing up kind of help shape your politics uh, now, uh, particularly with being a Pakistani American individual. You know, I, I'm fortunate in uh, some of my earliest teachers at my mosque were black scholars and black leaders. Mm. Black women and black men. And uh, uh, the mosque I attended on the south side of Chicago, 44, 40th South Wabash and 45th and State, was the first uh, mosque in the country uh, back in 1921. And so at a time of Jim Crow America, this was, I think, probably the only place or one of the only places in the country where you had black, Asian, white, Latino worshiping together uh, in solidarity, standing side by side. That was a powerful moment. That was a powerful movement. And so when my family arrived in the 80s, I was taught by either the direct descendants of those or the children of the people who were in that mosque. And so I think from a very young age, I had the the privilege, the extreme privilege of understanding race relations from the people who lived it and fought for racial justice. Mm -hmm. And I often say to my fellow South Asians in particular that we have immense thanks to give to Black Americans because but for Black Americans fighting the civil rights fight and ensuring the 1965 Immigration and Nationalization Act passed, mm-hmm. because they said none of us are free till all of us are free, but for that happening, me and my family would never have been able to immigrate in the first place, right? Because in 1924, after decades of anti-Asian discrimination, the Supreme Court finally passed a ban on Asian immigration, and the 1924 uh, Immigration Act was passed, also banning basically any non-white immigration into, um, the United States, yeah. that, into the United States. And so that was on the books for, for 40 plus years. So, so for me, you know, I was on a panel on Islamophobia a few weeks ago and a black uh, Muslim sister pointed out that, you know, uh, as black Muslims, we were trying to tell uh, the Asian community that, you know, this, this white adjacent um, um, relationships that you're building in exclusion to black people it's going to come back and bite you. And after 9-11, yeah. we said, we tried to tell y'all. Yeah. And, and, and she was exactly right. And so for me, it's, it's my distinct privilege when I think about the Black aunties and uncles that taught me and raised me that I, I was able to get that advantageous, right? You, talk about, you talked earlier about, about talent and access. Um, I had access to those brilliant minds, to those genius minds. And a lot of who I am today is defined by the training and education that I received at a very young uh, and and early age from black civil rights leaders and scholars. One of the things that is that we're learning on this show as we continue to, you know, create these episodes is that history has a tendency to move very slowly in a very progressive direction. And along the way, uh, it requires a lot of brilliant minds to take on other brilliant minds uh, who have an opposing view and pick apart their arguments or point out their hypocrisies. And so this is part of why we 
started to really appreciate at least your social media content, particularly so when you announced your campaign. Um, because you point out several hypocrisies uh, that that are very obvious uh, among Republicans. So why do you think that it's so hard for Republicans to shift their thinking when they are confronted with this information? And then I'll have a follow up question for you after that. Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm running as a Democrat, and I think mm -hmm. where I am clear is I will call it injustice wherever it rests. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the last few years, it's been predominantly among Republicans. I haven't been shy to call out injustice by Democrats either. Okay. Yep. But, but, but I think the, the goal that I, I try to strive for is that standard of justice in whatever I do. Um, mm -hmm. I, I had a, a, a post go viral a couple of days ago about uh how when it comes to abortion and reproductive health access there is a greater stress on punishing doctors and women but there was a story of a lawyer who drugged his wife with an abortion pill and he got a slap on the wrist exactly Harrison. on the same token uh and maybe not to equivocate but to point out the, the dangers there's plenty of democrats who don't support universal health care mm -hmm. and in doing so they're telling the 15 million women who don't have aca insurance too bad for you in doing so, they're telling women like Kate Cox, who have health insurance but are in a red state, too bad for you. And so for me, the hypocrisy that we need to call out needs to be consistent and it needs to be beyond politics. It just so happens that the Republican Party has given up any semblance of democracy right now. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, we're not off the hook. We need to uphold a consistent standard as well, because that's how we build a more perfect union. That's how we ensure consistency and trust and longevity. And I think one of the reasons why younger people are so disenfranchised is because we've gotten into this binary of one party can only do wrong and the other party can do no wrong. And I don't believe in that, you know, absolutism. You know, I, I believe that the Democratic Party is doing a better job. And that's why I'm running proudly as a Democrat, unapologetically as a Democrat. Mm -hmm. But that's not going to prevent me from being critical of my own party as well. Sure. I think that's how we build a better and stronger and more sustainable democracy. Absolutely. I appreciate the answer because that was actually my follow-up question. It was going to be, will, will you also point out hypocrisies uh, in the Democratic Party? And of course, you answered that. One of the reasons that um, we felt like that was an important question to ask here is so that, you know, the folks that will ultimately end up voting for you and our listeners as well, um, who are, who live outside of, you know, the state of Illinois, you know, we have to confront a few different intersecting realities at this, at this moment in time. And one of the more prominent pronounced realities is the erosion of black support for Joe Biden in particular. Um, and, you know, this is something that we cannot shy away from. We have to figure out what is going on there and how to speak the language and speak to the needs of black people in this country in order to keep them from continuing to become politically inactive. I think that's that's what's happening to a lot of folks. And then other people are willing to put up with the racism and the you know, all all of this, the, the negative aspects of another Trump presidency in favor of his proposed economic, you know, plans or whatever the case is. But, you know, a, a lot of people have uh, certainly in 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 a younger demographic 
have problems with Joe Biden, you know, obviously failing to to follow through on his promises with respect to, you know, police reform, um, uh, student loan uh, uh, forgiveness. And the big one as of late, of course, is the the Israel Hamas war and the United States' response to that. So what would you say to folks who may have become a bit less connected politically because they feel that they haven't been heard? And how would your campaign speak to those issues? Well, we're addressing these issues directly. You know, the first thing I tell uh, or I say to those young people is that your anger and frustration is completely justified. It's completely valid. I'm not here to tell anyone to suck it up or to deal with it because it's going to be worse under Trump. Um, I, what I am here to say is this, and this is why I started the show by talking about the power of the youth, the power of young people. Mm-hmm. Whatever we we think about the current candidates, this is where we are right now. And uh, we look at the history of this country and we look at the battles that people like John Lewis fought, the battles that people like um, uh, Robert Smalls fought. And you, you don't need to compare scars to know that those were insurmountable battles that they overcame. Sure. Uh, through blood, sweat, and tears, they overcame those battles. So one, it's the message of hope that we can overcome this as well. I know we can. This country's done it before. I feel uh, strongly about our ability to do so again. Two, it's channel that rage into action. And the action is to bring about a sense of justice and humanity. There is a lot to be said about what Joe Biden has done, the Mm -hmm. infrastructure bill, the CHIPS Mm -hmm. Act, the Inflation Reduction Act. And and I want to give respect to that. That also doesn't mean that it's good enough, right? Good enough is never good enough. We have immense work to do. We know that more than 70% of Americans want guaranteed universal health care as a human right. Um, and not enough Democrats are pushing for that. If they did, we could pass it. We know that uh, more than 90% of Americans uh, want to take the climate crisis seriously and get fossil fuel money out of politics. Enough Democrats are, you know, aren't taking that seriously, including my opponent, still taking Exxon money during a climate crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we know that more than 90% of Americans want to get corporate money out of politics. Um, not enough Democrats are following through on that. And that hypocrisy shows. And that's where young people rightfully get angry and disenfranchised. We know that 80% of Democrats and 66% of Americans want a ceasefire and release of all hostages. But, you know, uh, zero Republicans and I think something like only 20% of Democrats elected are willing to call for that. Even my opponent refuses to call for that while acknowledging that there are Israel's committing war crimes in Gaza. And so so for me, it's about channeling that anger and that frustration into something productive. And that's the way we're running our campaign. We are actively at the doors, reaching people, meeting them where they are. I got an email from uh, a young woman a few weeks ago saying that when she lived in a lower income part of the district, nobody ever knocked on her door, mm-hmm. not even once. She's gone through an uh, economic upward mobility, and she's able to now afford a home in a more wealthy part of the district. And now the politicians are calling her and knocking on her door every single day of the week. Mm-hmm. And she made it a point to me that make sure you don't neglect the people who are low income. And, and the yeah. funny thing is, the part that she called low income is the area I grew up. Mm-hmm. And so I said, you better believe that we are reaching every single person where they are, meeting them where they are. And that's the, that's the only commitment I can make is that 
I'm not going to ask you to betray your values. I am going to meet you where you are. We are going to work together and we are going to rise and elevate together. This is why I think we are getting a record number of young people joining our campaign. We're even getting Republicans joining our campaign because I'm not here to demonize individual people. Right. I'm here to fight for economic, social, and climate justice. That's a message that's resonating across the political spectrum. And I think that's where I want young people to channel their energy, know the power they bring to the table, and know that if we work together, we cannot be effective. Uh, we cannot only be effective in the short term, but also in the sustainable long term as well. So um, you mentioned something, and then I, I definitely want to focus on your campaign for the second part of the show. So in, in brief, uh, you mentioned, you know, the, the having Exxon money in, in politics and how people don't want money in politics and people feel betrayed by that. So discuss briefly why it is important to be people funded, which you are, and discuss the harm that comes from having money in politics. Give me about a minute, minute and a half. Look, the, the bottom line is whoever funds your campaign is who you're going to be accountable to once you're elected. That's just the, the basic facts. If you're paying my salary, Ramses, I'm not going to speak out against you. Why would I? You're, you're, you're paying my mortgage. Why would I speak out against you? You're, you're paying for me to have the privileges that I have. Why would I, I? You could commit the worst crime in the world. I would never speak out against you. And this is what we assume. You know, my, my opponent, there are so many examples. He voted for the ACA, which is a great bill at the time. And then he took hundreds of thousands from health insurance companies and then voted repeatedly to repeal and weaken the ACA. He voted for bank regulations. And then he took hundreds of thousands of dollars from, from Wells Fargo and other big banks. And then he voted with Donald Trump to deregulate banks. He voted for basic civil rights protections. And he took hundreds of thousands of dollars from the big box retailers. And then he voted to strip down disability rights and, and strip down privacy rights. And so it's not a, it's not a theoretical that if you take corporate money, you're going to be compromised. It's very practical. It's why, as divided as our country is, 95% of Americans want corporate money out of politics. Talk is cheap. My opponent talks about campaign finance reform. He talks about the importance of getting corporate money out of politics, but he never saw a bank lobbyist he didn't love. And mm. that's the problem. We need people about who are focused on action, not just talk. That's why our campaign is fully funded by the people. We don't have a single red cent of corporate PAC money in our accounts. We never will, because I happen to have this crazy idea that when our constitution says we, the people of the United States, it means actual human beings with a pulse and a heartbeat, not corporations. Well, you know what? There's, um, I think there's something there. You know, obviously I've been following your campaign very closely and I, I know that he's been avoiding <laughs> put it mildly been avoiding a debate, lightly, yeah. a debate yeah. with you and i know you extended the invitation several times um something i was definitely interested in seeing myself and i think that that may have something to do with it because obviously when pressed on issues like that it'd be tough for him to give an honest response or response that makes sense to the voters and so we'll keep talking about this but i want you to stick around we're going to move to another segment